Playing the ukulele badly because this podcast is self-produced. Weird stuff has happened in the past and here I am to tell you about it, I guess. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Absurd Real History. Hello and welcome to Absurd Real History, the podcast where I find weird stories that I find interesting and find great guests to tell it all to. Today, I am really excited to have the wonderful performer, comedian, and writer, Grace Mulvey. Hello, Grace. Hello, Saoirse. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I am so excited for this episode, not just because I have you on, but because I haven't resonated this much with a topic in a, in a while. Oh, God. I did so much research and there's a lot. It's going to be a it's going to be a journey and I'm really excited to share this with you because I think it's something we all need to know. Oh my god, I'm so excited for this. All right. I love me a tale. <laughs> so, okay. I love me a tale. Yeah, this this is this is a tale. It involves all the great things. But one thing is Monopoly. So what's your personal relationship with Monopoly, Grace? Oh my God, this is so funny, Saoirse. Only today, me and my sister were saying, because obviously at the moment in Ireland, we're in lockdown three, the trilogy. Mm. This is the worst one of the trilogy. <laughs> but my sister was like, oh, I'd love to play Monopoly. And I was like, yes, I would love to play Monopoly. I remember growing up um, playing Monopoly so much. And like me and my sister are incredibly competitive people. Um, and at one mm. point I kicked a Monopoly board, I swear to God, like right in my cousin's face. <laughs> I was so angry. <laughs> I think what always got me about Monopoly that I never really understood, I never won Monopoly. And that's because I always felt really sorry for the for the roads that were the cheapest because I thought, oh, like, mm. so in the in the Ireland one, it was Kimmage and Crumlin, which I ironically now live in Crumlin. And I used to always buy them. And of course, then I'd never win because they were worth nothing. So that's my relationship is where I basically don't have the heart of a capitalist. I have the heart of a person who feels sorry for the underdog. And then doesn't win at the end. Well, a couple of things. First off, I actually won a game of Monopoly by buying all the brown areas and just loading <gasps> them with hotels. And my brother-in-law was, to this day, I was only 14 when this happened, but he still remembers that. He's like, I'll never forget. No one ever wins on the brown spaces. Yes. Sersha, yeah. how did you do that? <laughs> no, I don't think that's legal. I don't think you're allowed to do that. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, pretty cool. Um, I didn't like Monopoly as a child because my sister was, uh, like you, didn't have the heart of a capitalist. And whenever someone was losing, she would always win at games though. So whenever someone was losing, she would feel sorry for them and like sneak them money because she was also always the banker okay. or make up like, oh, it's your birthday. Here's some money. Here's some money. But we are going to talk about the the origins of Monopoly. Oh, very good. Yeah. The surprising origins. Oh my God. Yeah. Don't tell me like Trump created it or something. I'll be deaf. <laughs> no, no. It was actually invented by my new favorite feminist hero and stolen by a man. <gasps> yeah. So that's what we're talking about today. Oh my God. You picked the right person to talk about this with. I'm going to be fuming so. <laughs> by the end of this. I can tell. But you're also, you're going to be fuming, but you're also going to be amazed by your new hero. Okay. Because the more I tell you about this woman, you're going to be like, oh my God, she's amazing. I love her because that's what happened to me. I'm ready. Okay. I'm just going to start from the beginning. So we're talking about Lizzie McGee. Lizzie <laughs> McGee. Great name. She definitely yeah. sounds like she'd be a porn star, but let's let's see what she did. <laughs> uh, Lizzie was born in 1866 to very progressive parents. 
Her father, James, owned a newspaper and prior to Lizzie's birth had worked with Abraham Lincoln mm. to help the abolishment movement. Basically help spread the news that slavery was bad. Good for him. Yeah. Her parents were good people. Yeah. For understanding Lizzie's story and also for understanding Monopoly, understanding Georgism is key. Okay. So Henry George inspired the economic philosophy Georgism and sparked several progressive movements in the late 19th century. Uh, to give you an idea of his beliefs, in 1886, he ran for mayor in New York advocating for a single tax, equal pay for women, oh. better building inspections, and putting an end to police interference at peaceful presentations, which are all, you know, still good, viable things now. Yeah, I feel like these are things that we are all advocating for now, particularly in the States. Yeah. My God. It's crazy. That's the thing reading this. It's like, man, you know, I think sometimes when we think of the past, we're like, oh, you know, you got to understand things are a context of its time. But there were always people who thought slavery was bad. And there was always people who thought, you know, that advocated for women's rights. It's just really depressing how he was advocating for things that now I'm like, yeah, we're still, <laughs> still, still fighting. banging that drum. <laughs> still having to fight for those things. That's so upsetting. Yeah. So he lost, he didn't win mayor, but he did beat a young Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. Just a little tidbit for you. Yeah. So the single tax theory is kind of the main core of Georgism. And it's basically, as far as I could understand, boils down to the belief that individuals should own 100% of what they make, but anything found in nature, like oil or water, but particularly land, should belong to everyone. But since some people do own land, that's what should be taxed. And the money being used to help the community and other goods shouldn't be taxed. Okay. Which I'm like, okay, still a good idea, yeah. you know? Basically, no tax on, you know, things. People don't pay tax, but the rich people that own land should pay lots of tax for owning land because people shouldn't really own land. I can get behind it. I mean, as a renter, um, I can definitely get behind that. I'm also yeah. very happy not to have to pay a tampon tax. So, <laughs> you know, I feel like I can get behind <laughs> this single tax system. Mm, yeah. These ideas resonated deeply with Americans in the late 1800s. It's important to realize that Georgists were not anti-capitalist. In fact, they believed capitalism, when utilized correctly, was highly effective. They were just anti-monopolist or anti-monopolism. Okay believing no person or corporation should own all of a natural resource, such as land, oil, kind of get the gist. Yes. And it was important to break down large companies to smaller ones. So competition is good. They wouldn't be happy with like, Jeff Bezos and the, uh, you know, Amazon at the moment. They wouldn't be into that sort of thing. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Also important, the Georgists were also huge supporters of gender equality and did a lot for the suffragette movement. Amazing. Lizzie grew up in a very feminist house in a time when feminism wasn't really a thing. So Lizzie grew up in Illinois, but her family eventually moved to Washington, D.C. She was very close to her father and they were often compared to being very similar. Uh, when Lizzie grew up, she was in very political circles, highly political circles. Henry George's son was even cited as being a friend of her hers. Mm. Uh, she mainly, yeah, so she mainly worked as a typist and was very vocal in her feminist and Georgist beliefs, particularly equal pay for women, an idea that had been talked about for a while, but, but was not even remotely close to being enforced, yeah. because this is the late 1800s. I mean, like, we're still a well, while away from it now, you know what I mean? <laughs> so she was well away from it at the time. High in the sky kind of stuff. In her spare time, Lizzie wrote poetry, short stories, performed in plays, 
was highly praised for her comedic roles and often convincingly performed male roles. She also, according to a few sources, was a stand-up comedian. No way. I'm loving this woman. I told I told you, I told you. Now, how anyone, let alone a woman, was a stand-up comic at the dawn of the 20th century, I have no idea. But I wish I could have seen it. <laughs> I'm wondering if she has to put up with the same stuff that female comedians have to put up with now. Like Louis C.K. or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was like, what did she have to go through? Oh, probably much worse. <laughs> I believe it was, like, her stand-up comedy was her performing comedic monologues. I have a quote here from her father. She f- wants to fly but hasn't got the wings. Which is, it's really sad because I really feel like, you know, she was obviously raised to do all this amazing stuff. Yeah. And just frustrated that she she can't do this stuff. Yeah, that she's confined. And it just shows you as well, I think... I have to say, I think like a lot of women who'd be very outspoken would have needed to have been raised in a household kind of like hers, where she, you know, where she felt like she could speak, you know, exactly. And to have a dad who, a man in her life who thought like that would definitely, you know, I could see where she'd get her spark from, you know, and be a stand-up comedian at the turn of the bloody 19th century. (laughs) It's incredible. Like, so I thought, I thought you'd like that, that she was a comedian. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'd love to, I wonder if she has a tight 10 minutes I could listen to. That's what I want to know. A <laughs> <laughs> tight five. Yeah, tight 10 minutes. That's what you want to hear. Do you know what I mean? I wonder how her stuff would go down now. I'd love if she was like incredibly woke. Like I'd love, <laughs> love if she was talking about stuff that we're like, oh my God, did she say non-binary? How did this woman, how is she so far ahead of her time? It, it actually makes me kind of sad because I think like how many great people did we miss out on history just because they were women that were raised with fathers that weren't like her father, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Or how many like, you know, I can't remember the name of the woman now, but she's like a, a black woman in the States who uh, basically created rock and roll. Like she, mm. you know, she was like, had had the gu- guitar around uh, like she always wore dresses and stuff and like you know the amount of people like she basically created rock and roll and then of course rock and roll was taken by over by like yeah. white men you know what I mean but it's all it's all this stuff of, like the amount of like incredibly talented people who are just forgotten in history because they don't look like what we think they should look like you know or the gender they should be mm. you know what I mean that we associate you know the success with basically you know that's and even like rock and roll now you think white men really do you know what I mean like when you think of rock and roll but like actually it was started by a black woman's maybe yeah um pity you don't remember her name though I am notoriously bad with names but I think you know you're also raised in a society that told you to forget about these women and remember these these men instead (laughs) yes (laughs) so this is this is her name I totally forgot this Sister Rosetta Thorpe. Oh, yes. And I might be mispronouncing the last name, but Sister Rosetta Thorpe. Tharp, maybe? But yeah, that was her name. Created rock and roll. Look her up. Deadly woman. Maybe that's an episode. I I think it should definitely be an episode. Definitely. You know, it's funny. Just before I started recording this podcast, because I was talking to my mom because I felt so strongly about Lizzie McGee and I was like ranting and she said to me because she's an avid listener of my podcast as all great mammies are shout oh. out to my mother Susanna hey, hi Susanna's mom Rosanna <laughs> Susanna not, oh, not Susanna this is so bad I have names Susanna <laughs> uh, but she was saying to me just before I started recording this she's like Sarah I've noticed a theme in your podcast shafted women and I'm like funny that That'd be also, if you ever were to change your name of the podcast to Shafted Women, I'd be all behind it. Yeah. 
podcast, Shafted Women, with me, your host, Saoirse Chimay. So, in 1892, Lizzie uh, published a book of poetry titled My Betrothed. Now, I I tracked this down and I read it and I really liked it. I really liked her poetry. One, I think it's shocking that you enjoy poetry. (laughs) Two, you actually read this woman's poetry. It's amazing. I do my research. Very good. And by the way, I'm not saying you enjoying poetry. I mean, anyone enjoying poetry. I just can't get behind it. I'm not going to lie. That's okay. I I like some some poetry, but it was was good. Like, that's the thing. It was was good. Uh, Romance, nature and unfairness seem to be kind of constant themes. Very good. Um, I have a couple of quotes here from it that I just picked out that I think just give you a good sense of who she was as a person. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So she has a poem called Self where she discusses how human beings are inherently selfish before concluding, and this is a quote, the happiest are those who are to others kindest and who cause most happiness to all. The great are those who make the world the better by their deeds. Which I'm like, yeah, that's nice. I get behind that. Oh my God. She's adorable. (laughs) I love this woman. I told you, I love her. She's my new feminist hero. Yeah, Lizzie McGee. And no one's heard of her name. So she has another poem called To the Egotist. And I'm going to read this poem in its entirety because it's a short poem. This is like poetry corner. (laughs) We're taking a little break to just do have a little poetry corner. Okay. To the Egotist. Think of this earth, this great revolving globe that whirls along its boundless path through the immensity of space. Think of the multitude of stars that dot the midnight sky. Think of the mirads more beyond that baffle man's conception. Think of a million suns and more, vast orbs of living fire. Think of this endless wilderness of worlds, the universe. And what are you? That's it. That's the whole poem. (laughs) Wow. It's good, right? She was really, she was a, like, that's, listen, once again, I'm not a huge fan of poetry, but that's a good, that's good, that's some good poetry. Do you know what I mean? She's a good writer. She's a very good writer. She has talent. Yeah. And was she able, like, she had, like, a book published, is this it? This was and, like, published, Was yeah. that published within her time, or? Yeah, like, this was a, a proper published poetry book. Um, She would have a lot of short stories published in articles. She was published in the same magazine that Edgar Allan Poe was published in, The Godey. Wow! Like she did, she did well for herself. Which is is no mean feat for that time for a woman to be published. You know what I mean? Like in her own name. Like a lot of women would have used like male names sometimes to get published in the first place. You know, so no mean feat that she managed to do it in, in her own name. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of lost in regards to Lizzie McGee. She was written out of history, and you know, like find like tracking these down was hard and would have been close to impossible if not for the work of some great individuals that I'll talk to towards the end when I get to sources and what and whatnot. Did like maybe what you said was right, maybe she did use a male name to pu- publish some stuff. I don't know what that is. Can't find it. Right. Okay. There's another poem she had called He Loved Her, all about love and obviously very romantic. And the last line when I was reading it came out of nowhere and I was laughing i don't know if it's meant to be funny but i it i don't know it just got me maybe it's just the time it was or um so it's just like really sweet poem about like oh you know he loves her and like it's all romantic about like you know his their his breath across her cheek and all this kind of stuff uh but then the last line so all this build up and the very last line would the sweet longed for words from his lips never come alas never poor girl for her lover was dumb oh what exquisite joy was denied her (laughs) 
<laughs> such great build up. And then just like, nope, he's dumb. Yeah, such a great build up. I love it. Uh, it's like she got to the end and she's like, you know what? Feck, I'm, I'm sick of this. <laughs> she's like, I, I'm just sick of him. I'm going to I'm gonna really let him have it in the last line. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Another poem of hers that I liked was Relativity. A lovely poem about how differences are important. Concluding, if people did not differ in sentiment and thought, mankind would be a unit and life would be for naught. Wow. Fair play. I liked a lot of her poems and as much as I love to sit here reading all of them, I actually had to cut Follow Bound. I'm like, Grace doesn't want to listen to me read poetry for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, some of the poems are lovely. I mean, like, listen, I think I associate, I have a bad association with poetry due to like doing the Leaving Cert in Ireland where we had to yeah. study poets where like, I, I really like Sylvia Plath. I really like Patrick Kavanagh. There's these poets out there that I think are great. But there was one, and I can't remember the name of the poet. Once again, my um na- remembering names is not great. But like literally, I swear to God, it was five pages on a fish and I'll just never recover from how... Oh, Elizabeth Bishop. Thank I you. I remember yes. that. And I just <laughs> I remember, remember that I was well. like, she, was, she used like three bloody prose to describe a scale or like a gill. And I was like, babe, yeah. you, need, you need help because I just don't think that this should be five yeah. pages long. Sometimes when you have to study something like that in a real academic way, you can actually kill your love for it because listening to you recite that poetry is lovely. But because I have such bad PTSD from the leaving cert, I now just have such a bad reaction to poetry. Do you know what I mean? Or a bad association with it. Mm. I will say the first poem in it, My Betrothed, was way too long. Right. And I didn't really like that one so much. Sometimes I, I think some poets need a, need a good editor. You know, they need an <laughs> editor to come in and go, like that with that fish one. Babes, listen. <laughs> you really, you really don't like Elizabeth Bishop's fish. Oh, uh, you know what? <laughs> this is this this is what I really wanted to come on and talk about, Sergio. Is I hate that poem. <laughs> I have a vendetta against the fish as a poem. Um, anyone listening to actually, actually go and look it up to see what I'm talking about. I just want to see if people agree or not. But I think everyone who studied in Ireland, you know, it's been the same poets for. God knows what, like 30 years? Oh, yeah. They're, they're like recycled. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, but loving little Lizzie McGee's poetry. Loving it. She's great. Put her on the leaving search. That's what I'm Put saying. Put her on the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hated Seamus Heaney for the, because of the junior search. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. All about nature. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was rough. <laughs> it was a rough time. <laughs> Particularly the junior cert means nothing as well. Like that's what the killer is. You know what I mean? At least the leaving cert is like, you know, they say it's important. But like the junior cert, everyone's like, ah, here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember around that time, I had like a particular hatred of Seamus Heaney because our teacher loved him. And like, I always had to write about him. I just, I just didn't like him. And I was, yeah. And my, uh, my very first boyfriend's uncle gave me a Christmas present and it was a book of Seamus Heaney poetry. And I had to like. What? (laughs) Your boyfriend's uncle gave you a book of Seamus Heaney. For Christmas. (laughs) What a shy present. I still have it. Are you joking me? kind of presence is that to give to a young woman like I'm just a young person like that's you being like I think you should be reading this bloody hell give me a bottle of fucking gin or something do you know what I mean (laughs) I think it might have just it was probably just like um he had it 
laying around like a spare present. I don't know. I don't know. A spare, a Seamus Heaney book is a spare present. I hear now. A candle is a spare present. <laughs> I love that you gave me like. I mean, they were, they're an artsy, an artsy right. family. Yeah. You know me going for the artsy boys, coming from an artsy family. Yeah. It's like, do you know what? If someone handed me like the Iliad for Christmas, I'd be fuming. Like, I'd just be like, listen, <laughs> that's a present I'll buy myself. I'm not a present. I'll go to the bloody library and get it out. Like, do you know what I mean? I'm not. <laughs> I've ne- never, if someone gave me Seamus Eden for Christmas. <laughs> this really resonated with you. Oh, Serge, I'm fuming for you. <laughs> oh, stop it. Yeah. Yeah. So back to Lizzie, yeah. our powerhouse of a woman. So female comedian, writer, game maker, as we'll get to later, an activist. Could she get any cooler? I Seriously, like, you, I want to be following this woman on Twitter do you know what I mean? Like, I want to be seeing She'd your TikTok. She'd be TikToks. great on Twitter. Yeah, I want to see your TikTok her videos. I want to see your Instagram stories. I can't believe this woman isn't around now. Like, the way you're describing her. She's so, she seems so ahead of her time. Yeah. Uh, she also dabbled in engineering. Well, she, no, do you know what, Sarsha? Listen, I'm leaving. Because this, <laughs> this woman is too good to be true. And I'm fuming she's dead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What? So, in- engineering, how so? Well, in 1893, when she was only 26, she applied and received a patent for a device she invented because she was a stenographer, typewriter. So she made this device that let paper slide through the typewriter rollers easier. Also let them fit more type on a page and allow different size documents to be placed in it. So, you know, this is why you need female engineers, okay? And I'm going to say this, right? Because she was a typist. Like, you need people going into engineering who've done let's just say the more mundane jobs because they will come up with ways to make those mundane jobs easier. Do you know what I mean? Like, as in like, yeah. she's like, do you know what? Day to day, I'm typing away. I know how to, I know how to get around this little paper jam. If you, I'm sure there are some, there's someone in an office, a woman in an office somewhere who's had a meltdown over a printer more than once who could probably fix, because I don't know about you, search, but I've never come across a printer that's worked. <laughs> I'm sure there's like some woman out there who's like, if you just let me... Let me into a lab. I can get this fixed for you. Like, that's what I mean. Like, I actually am in awe of this woman. I'm in awe of her. Let me tell you, I'm I'm writing a play about this woman somehow. Oh, it's happening. Amazing. <laughs> you should do a musical number about how she managed to engineer a way to not make the paper jam <laughs> on a typewriter. <laughs> like, that musical number. If you did a musical of this woman, that'd be amazing if that was like a hit, the hit song. <laughs> You know, oh, I, I'm not really a musical person, so oh. um, if any musicians out there, yeah, you know, want to reach out to me, do some team, I'd be well up for that though, because I love singing, I love musicals, just not great at writing them. Listen, if Andrew Lloyd Webber's listening, okay, <laughs> <laughs> and you fancy writing an L ballad about I, getting a paper job fixed, mm, I don't like Andrew Lloyd Webber. <gasps> well, then, Andrew, sorry, babes, if you're listening. <laughs> The job's not for you. <laughs> I know. Who who would who would you go for? I would get Tim Minchin. Do you know Tim oh, Minchin? Oh yes, and he just did Matilda. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yeah. and I love Matilda, and I love his other stuff, and I think Tim Minchin would be a good. Oh, good he'd do a crack. Or I would find an unknown woman. Yeah, he'd do a cracking song about a uh, woman engineering a way of fixing a paper jam. Yeah, he would. Uh, well, Tim, if you're listening, Tim. 
Timmy baby how many we got Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim listen to this this is unbelievable I have big <laughs> listeners I I know I'm a, I have big listeners so yeah um and also her father was there beside her as a witness when she was getting the patent wow you know oh. supporting her all the way and unfortunately shortly after that I think like two weeks after she got the patent he passed away oh, you're joking um yeah, from an illness that he got from cold weather. And obviously Lizzie was devastated. Because yeah. it was clear how he supported her in a time where most fathers would not have supported a woman acting the way she did. It just shows you as well, like, you can... I think it's so important for, you know, men to support women. Like, as in, like, if you have some... Because re- men can be fantastic. Listen, I'll vouch for any of them. But if you can mm. get... A, a, I think a lot of women who are really successful in their lives have had some great men in their lives as well who've helped them and supported them and been you know what I mean as well as great women in their lives I always think it's you know particularly for her to have accomplished so much at a time when like you weren't allowed to do anything my god he he they must have had such a close relationship less than one percent of all patents were women had wow so not only was it remarkable that she was getting a patent as a woman but it was remarkable that she was 26 (laughs) My God, 26. Yeah, I kind of, I love her, but I also kind of hate her. (laughs) How dare you accomplish so much? Do you know what? I will say this. As much as I'm like, I'd love to see her on TikTok, you know, Instagram grinder, whatever she'd be up to. I do think that she probably managed to accomplish a lot more because she didn't have social media. I was just thinking that she didn't have Netflix to distract her. Exactly, exactly. So in the years that followed, Lizzie would continue to write and publish short stories one in particular is called The Theft of a Brain, The Story of a Hypnotized Novelist and mm. a Cruel Deed, which took me a real long time to, to track down and find, but I did and I read it. You did? Yeah. And again, it was real good. It was a short story um, and it was published in the Godi, which is, as I was saying before, um, Poe was published in. Um, it's a women's magazine in Philadelphia. Wow. And oddly, this story drew parallels with what would happen to Lizzie McGee in the future in regards to her board game and Monopoly. Oh my God, I'm actually like so nervous about what happens with her Monopoly game. <laughs> I told like... you, it's a it's a tale, it's a journey. Yeah, I always yeah. take my guests on journey. Yeah. On... <laughs> I find the weird stories. I can't believe that you found her short story. Sergio, you're a little detective. <laughs> you know. I will say there was a lot of stuff that I couldn't find. Yes, right, You know, stuff right. that, you know, the articles, l- most of the articles about her are not online. They're not digi- digitalized. They're right. not easy to find. You have to go in person. Right. I couldn't find out yeah. as much as I would like. Well, but, it's it's, you know, it's COVID times, hon, so give yourself a break. Not many people are able thanks. to go around in person, <laughs> you know. Well, I also think I have to be in New York. And, yeah. You know. But, yes, yeah, so her story of the theft of a brain um, is really interesting and it's like it tells the story of laura lynn a writer unable to write due to her lack of confidence the little quote that i liked from it oh if only i could write as fast as i can think i think that a lot i'm sure you do too yeah 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 um she finds a hypnotist and together they create great published short stories but later she discovered that he was also stealing her great novel she had planned and published that under his own name so she would you wait wait a minute she was working with a hypnotist in the story yeah. or actually in life? In the story. The story is about okay. Laura Lynn. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. So I was thinking, I was like, wait, what just happened? Okay. Yeah. 
Of course. She's like, I have these stories in my head, but I'm too self-conscious to write. So if I could be in a hypnotic state, I could write right. these stories. Yeah. So that's because I just need that pressure to to write because my yeah. confidence. Yeah. So again, I think something that a lot of creatives can. Oh my god! To. Yeah. Listen, we've all tried the hypnotism route. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> I don't know about so you. She, yeah. If David Blaine is listening. <laughs> If you could, David's another avid fan. Yeah, David, if you could please hypnotize me into doing some work, that'd be fantastic. Exactly. So, you know, she she does this, stories get published, her confidence goes up, and then um he disappears, and the novel that she had in his head her head, while he was doing that, he was also slowly getting more chapters towards that, and he published that and made money. Um so yeah, that's that story. But that's, okay, I'm confused now. Is that the story she wrote? As in like, that's the story in she the wrote. story she wrote about a woman who was getting hypnotized and her story yeah. was stolen. Yes, okay. Yeah. Right, okay. So besides writing, Lizzie would also teach classes on the single tax theory in the evenings. We're going back to, to George's. Right, yeah. Ge- George's theories were dwindling. So she wanted to create a fun game in hopes of reaching more people. So in the Gosh. early 1900s, while working as a stenographer in Washington, D.C., her being in her 30s and unmarried, which was odd at the time. She yeah. worked on I'm a there game with you, hon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, it's not weird now to be in your 30s and unmarried, but back then, you know. I know, but I'm, I'm just like, I see you, Lizzie. Yeah. I see you, okay? <laughs> she works on a game called The Landlord's Game. She worked on this for a while. So as early as right. 1902, there was an article in the Single Tax Review of Lizzie speaking openly about her game. This was risky because this was a time where women didn't speak publicly about their ideas or beliefs. Yeah. Uh, So in this, Lizzie explains the game as, and I quote, a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. She explains the game more. And as I explain this game, I want you to think, does this sound, you know, familiar to anything you play today? Yes. Uh, So explain some more representative money, deeds, mortgages, Notes and charters are used in the game. Lots are bought and sold. Rents are collected. Money is borrowed, either from the bank or from individuals. And interest and taxes are paid. The game also had a circular track, which at the time was quite revolutionary for games, as most American games. And I say American games because there was another game. Oh, Pachas. I didn't actually write this down. Pachasi. I know. It was some game in Asia had a circular board. But in America, most games were a singular track. You go from start to finish. Right. So the fact that this didn't was like revolutionary for the time of board games. (laughs) Uh, Lizzie also included on her board a go to jail tile and a jail, which you had to roll a double for going out. Which again, what does that, you know, has that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I love that. Yeah. yeah, Unbelievable. I looked at uh, patterns of this board and it's, you know, it looks a lot like Monopoly. <laughs> oh my God. There was a poor house for when you ran out of money. The game also included railroad spaces and a public park. The public park, which is with become free parking. Oh my God. That makes so much sense. Actually, public <laughs> park makes so much more sense than free parking. Now that yeah. I think about it. <laughs> yeah. What we think of as Go on the Monopoly board started off as the Mother Earth tile. You would receive $100 each time you passed it to symbolize, you know, the work that you had done from Mother Earth. You are joking. 
Unlike Monopoly, however, the game ended when every player had circled the board a predetermined set of times. Lizzie also included in her rules that the rules can't cover everything, and in cases like that, it is up to the players to debate and decide amongst themselves, thus adding to the fun, which hasn't really gone away. You know, you've heard the thing that most people aren't playing Monopoly, right? Yeah, yeah. And like, a lot of people don't play Monopoly till the end because it's tedious. Like, is it like you get to a stage where you're like, okay, can we just decide who the winner is? And it's the person with the most money. Yeah. Um, Lizzie believed that children as young as nine or 10 could play and enjoy the game, concluding, let the children once see clearly the gross injustice of our present land system. And when they grow up, if they are allowed to develop naturally, the evil will soon be remedied. I love that she, like fair play to Lizzie for really thinking children are that smart. And I'm not saying that kids aren't intelligent. They definitely are She calls them of average intelligence. She said children of average intelligence could play this game. Oh, like average intelligence. Like I definitely looked at Monopoly and I was like, I just want things. (laughs) I'm like, give me the pretty cards. I want all the money. Like I was a greedy little bitch. (laughs) Like I did not in any way learn anything about land tax from Monopoly. Well, that's because you played Monopoly. You didn't play Lizzie's right. game. Yeah, and the I game, didn't. And I, yeah. I suppose, like, the fact that she wanted people to debate at the end gives you a good indicator that she was like, I want people to really discuss what's right and what's wrong about the way that we do this. Well, here's the thing Lizzie's game had two ways of playing, two sets of rules. The game oh. also included a single tax way of play that could be integrated at any time essentially to show how when you play the game this way it's more fair and you know using these anti-monopolist rules of course it would be the monopolist rules that people would grow to love i think lizzie underestimated how people yeah. are greedy bastards yeah yeah she underestimated me as a child as a greedy little bitch yeah yeah not just you all children and she said that's part of the fun though she kind of knew that you know she talks yeah. about how part of the fun of the game is mocking people when they end up in jail which i pretty funny <laughs> lizzie had a little dark side to her <laughs> little minx lizzie yes i like to mock people who are imprisoned you're like no oh, yeah. good for you <laughs> so in 1904 lizzie got her patent on the landlord's game okay and she then proceeded to you know offer it to game companies which of course it was rejected by all of them but in 1906 lizzie published the game under the Economic Game Company, which is a company set up in New York with friends, and Lizzie was considered a part owner. In this year, okay. Lizzie also moves to Chicago. Okay. My favorite story that I could find is that when she moved to Chicago, she was finding it difficult to support herself on $10 a week in the city. So she put out an ad in the local paper as kind of like a, a stunt, a young woman, American slave. Oh my God. And offered herself to the highest bidder. She made national headlines. Unfortunately, I couldn't gain access to the original ad in its entirety like I wanted to. So all of the stuff I have now are, you know, quotes from secondhand sources, not not from the actual source. But regardless, in the ad, she described herself as intelligent, educated, refined, true, honest, just, poetical, philosophical, broad-minded and big-souled and womanly above all things. Brunette, large gray eyes, full passionate lips, splendid teeth, not beautiful, but very attractive, (laughs) features full of character and strength, yet truly feminine, height five feet, three inches, well-proportioned, graceful. Oh my God. 
Lizzie. I love that. What in God's name? <laughs> so was she just like putting herself out there to, when you say be a slave, do you mean like a servant or are we talking like sex work or something? So the goal of this stunt was to demonstrate the dismal p- position women yes. are in in regards to low pay. Yeah. It was to show like, this is the only way women can support themselves is by auctioning them off as a slave. Wow. My God. So she got national headlines. It's controversial. It was, it's hilarious though. But it went over a lot of people's heads. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I like that we she's like, not beautiful, but very attractive. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I think that's something that I think like most women can relate to. It's like, I'm not beautiful, but I'm very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm very beautiful. I'm very attractive. That would have yeah. been in my ad. Too beautiful and attractive <laughs> to be a servant to anyone. <laughs> well, the goal was basically, she just wanted someone to pay for her to do her great ideas and to live the life she felt she should do. Yeah. She describes herself in it as a born entertainer, deeply religious, but not pious. Mm. That she's a great typewriter, but typewriting for others is hell. Right. Okay. So she liked to type for herself, but not type for other people. Yeah. And I think she was just getting frustrated that she was getting low pay to basically be, to do secretary work. And she's like, I should have a secretary. I should not be the secretary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also noteworthy as well, like, you know, a lot of the roles that women have in, in society even now are lo- the lower paying roles. So still women are the secretaries uh, in offices and things like that. And like the secretaries in like, you know, the medical community and everything like that. But also they are the care providers and nurses. And these are all yeah. social workers. And these are all lower paid jobs in our society. Yeah. So it's still like, and yet they're the ones that, I mean, listen, <laughs> particularly now during the pandemic would like, I think we could all agree nurses should be on what, like half a million a year. Like, you know what I mean? Everyone, these are the roles that actually is very hard to get people into because they're so difficult. And yet they're the lowest paying roles. Oh God. And even with secretaries and stuff, like any say manager and stuff, or, you know, person without their secretary, give them like 20 minutes in the office by themselves, probably set the place on fire. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. So Lizzie, this got a lot of attention. She made national headlines again, I couldn't find get access to these papers. You know, they're papers that haven't been digitalized from 1906. Yeah. But there are people that did get access to them and that I was able to get stuff from there. So when talking of the ad to a reporter, she went on to say, we are not machines. Girls have minds, desires, hopes, and ambition. Which again, still agree with. Yeah. Uh, she goes on to say how men seem to be blind by the dangers of the capitalist society because, you know women are the ones being treated as machines and low paying. Yeah. And also she goes on to say to the reporter and this, wow, this is a beautiful, beautiful Lizzie quote. If you're looking for one, I'm thankful that I was taught how to think and not what to think. I'm thankful that I've got good eyesight and better brain sight than most people have by a darn sight. Oh, Lizzie girl. (laughs) I want to have that on my gravestone. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's great. Oh, and just so you know, she was 40 when she did this. Oh, cool. She got inundated with responses, many of which were from people that didn't quite get what she was going for. She was dazed by the attention and a lot of the negative ones that it received. So here's another quote that she said to a reporter. I offered to sell myself to the highest bidder for the purpose of meeting some person who could place me where I belong in the ranks of the world's workers. What does my appearance have to do with that? Yeah. Because someone like asked her for a photo. Obviously, there were people that were like, ooh, are you offering yourself as a sex slave? And she's like, no. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure she got a lot of actual like inquiry inqui inquiries where people were really actually interested in buying the ser her services, which is upsetting. Yeah. You know, the press also interviewed her mother. Um, there's a quote from her mom. I think she is a genius. Nay, I can't say I fancy being the mother of a genius. But she goes on <laughs> to say how people... Yeah. Which is great quote. She goes on to say how people may see Lizzie as crazy, but she really isn't. And she has thousands of friends who all adore her. Aww. So everyone loves Lizzie. Yeah, go Liz. So she would go on to work in a newspaper. Uh, she continued to write and perform while also continuing to, to create games. She made a game called Mock Trial, which was kind of like a charades improv game that was published by Parker Brothers. So this was published by a big gaming company. Okay. But my understanding of Lizzie is she definitely felt trapped. Clearly a modern woman in a world that wouldn't allow her to be her. You can feel her frustration in her writings. This is perhaps most clear in an article she wrote in 1909 titled A Graphic Description of Hell by One Who Was Actually In It. Wow. So here are a few extracts from that that I picked out of what Lizzie says is hell. To have a sensitive and refined nature and have to be forever brushing up against pigs. I mean, you're a female comic. Do you understand that? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I think that's the next, that's the name of my next solo show. <laughs> uh, to know that you can do some things better than other people and never have the opportunity to prove it. It's so apt for a lot of people today. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, the fact that, you know, she was saying all this and feeling all this in 1909, like... Yeah. I just started crying at some stage when I was thinking about Lizzie. Maybe that's because it was half midnight and I was um, feeling those lockdown vibes. But <laughs> I don't know. I feel, oh, it just makes me so sad and angry that we didn't get more of her. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like she was obviously very talented, very great. And oh, but anyway, <laughs> um, another thing Lizzie thinks is hell. And again, these were all great. I could have put in all her quotes, but I couldn't because, you know. I'm just giving you a flavor of Lizzie's writing. To have these everlasting, don't worry and keep smiling signs staring you in the face when you don't know when your next meal is coming from. And at this stage, was she just, by the way, still being a secretary? I'm kind of confused about where we are now because this is after she's put out the ad and everything like that, is it? Yes. Right. She's working in a newspaper, but, you know, mainly doing secretarial work. Yeah, and um, just not being paid enough, yeah. Uh, much to everyone's surprise, she got married in 1910, even though she's quoted as previously describing marriage as a germ and not wanting to give up her freedom. Wow. She was 44, which is rare for a first marriage back yeah. in the day, you know. And she married Albert Phillips, a man 10 years her senior. Uh, nothing hints that this was an un unhappy marriage, and it certainly didn't slow Lizzie down. She continued her performing and writing, etc. And how did she meet this man? I don't know. Or like, what did he do? I don't know. No one mm, knows. Okay. It's lost in history. Right. And did she wear white to the wedding? You don't know. know. <laughs> don't know. Right. So I guess, you know, you're asking like, Saoirse, what does this happen? What's happening to Monopoly? How does, how did Monopoly become Monopoly? Yeah. So this is, and again, this is where the story gets really fascinating, which I don't go into too much because for the purpose of this, I wanted to focus on Lizzie. I wanted this to be like a yeah. podcast about yeah. Lizzie. But meanwhile, The Landlord's Game was continuing to sell okay. There is even a Scottish version published. The game was mainly... Yeah. 
Uh, the game was mainly played and sold amongst intellectuals across the East Coast in the States. You know, people, Georgists and, you know, people who believed in yeah. women's rights. The intellectuals. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Scotland. I, I love that Scotland was f- filled with these people. Well, she is... Scotland was the hub of, of women's rights in Europe, well, apparently. Well, <laughs> she, um, her roots um, are from Scotland. Because, you know, in early America, mm-hmm. no one was really American. Because, you know, yeah. stolen land and all that. Yeah. yeah. But however, unaware to Lizzie, the game had developed a somewhat underground scene. Oh, what, like a fight club? <laughs> Are we talking like a landlord game fight club? I'm loving this. It's where all the landlords get together and they just start Boxing. kicking the shit out of each other. <laughs> if it was a tenants and landlords fight club, I would well, <laughs> well attend. <laughs> It's not clear how or exactly when the game became popular in a single tax community called Arden in Delaware, but it did. Lizzie definitely had connections nice. there, though, um, but no one, most people didn't know that she had invented it. Here, they made their own versions of the game, and the game was called the Monopoly Game or Monopoly Shorthand. Oh, my God. Yeah. The boards were also altered to include spaces involving their own community and rules were changed to improve the game because they were practicing it and playing it. So they would make their own boards and, you know, start using um, trinkets as pieces, you know? So start using like rings or like an earring or like a a thimble, which is how we got the tokens. Yep. Yeah, because when you think about it, it is so weird that there is a thimble as one of the <laughs> as one of the items for uh, Monopoly. Like they have like a car and a dog. Like there's always like uh, there's no consistency with it. Now that makes sense considering where it started. Yeah, the game also spread to universities. Uh, Scott Nearing, who was was a economics professor in Wharton, and would use the game as a teaching tool. And by the 1920s. You know who loved Monopoly and their own underground boards in the 1920s? The frat boys. No. You're telling me that frat frat boys who like now like fucking like drink kegs for breakfast and like go around weirdly like, I don't know, like stealing pigs and then just like being naked around each other. But like weirdly homophobic at the same time they're the ones in the beginning of the century were actually just playing monopoly all night yeah how times have changed and again (laughs) adding to it adding to it as they went with these home homemade games and there was one person who came back from holidays to somewhere in Europe I can't remember when I didn't actually write this down this is the thing oh I had to cut this down and now I'm talking to you I'm just telling you all the stuff that I cut out anyway (laughs) um but you know he got mini apartments I think it was Sweden or somewhere like that and mini houses and they started substituting you know the apartment for meaning five houses and it slowly was morphing more into the monopoly that we know that we know now yeah and here's here's the thing you know who fucking loved Monopoly? Like who loved it? Who? This is, this is the Quakers. No. The Quakers. The Porridge the Quaker Lads. Community, <laughs> the Quaker community of Atlantic City. Oh, Atlantic City City, they do love now good a bit of a casino and stuff like that. That makes a bit more sense. In Atlantic City at the time, you had like the, the party people, especially around Prohibition, and then the Quakers who were, you know, against all that. But 
through, I think, Arden. And so they just started playing Monopoly. Again, they had no idea who invented it. It was just passing on through word of mouth. They would make their homemade boards, but they fucking loved Monopoly. They would like, and this is where the game really became Monopoly. Because they would keep playing it and they would change it. The first Monopoly was all Atlantic City spaces. If you go to Atlantic City, there's loads of stuff about Monopoly. I've never been, but that's what I hear. And here's the thing. Atlantic City was a big hotel city. So this the is where the houses and the apartments changed right. to hotels. Yes. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. So through this connection, those people who were introduced to the game eventually made its way to Charles Darrow. Okay. Charles Darrow is, up until very recently, who everyone said invented Monopoly. Oh my God. That bastard. <laughs> told you it's a it's a story it's a journey yes. taking you on. yeah charles darrow who got his art friend to spruce up the board and this is the style that we know today the designs that he did are the ones that stuck on the board the, the go sign so was he the guy who like came up with the baldy fella who's like at the top of the box with the with the top hat most likely that one is not 100 percent right. set in certain and here's the thing, that guy never got a dime. Um, but he seemed fine with it. They, he still no. seemed friends with Charles Darrow. Charles was asking for it as, as a favour. So yeah, he sold the game and it did well. Parker Brothers initially rejected it as they found it too complicated and thought it didn't seem very fun. But the company were doing badly during the depression and eventually bought Monopoly after hearing about it. They paid Charles $7,000 plus residuals. And of course, the rest is history. Okay. I don't need to tell you after 1935 how, you know, how successful Monopoly was. People... I mean, like, yeah. literally, nearly every household, I feel like, in the world has a Monopoly board of some kind. Yeah, you know? I, I think it stems from, like, the time it came out and the fact that it really streamlined the design. In fact, like, the design was very streamlined yeah. that he got his friends to do. It was presented nicely. You know, it was during the Depression, so people were staying in a lot more, so... Yeah, and uh, and also it's a game about money. Exactly. So like People during the depression, when you've got no money, this is a nice game to be like, oh look, I can pretend I have money. You know what really exactly. gets me about the Monopoly game? What? After hearing about how it came about, I love it is such a capitalist game because how the Monopoly game came about was it was one person's idea. Then a load of different people within the community made it even better, worked together to do so, and then one guy basically. Uh, takes all of those ideas and patents it and makes a load of money off it. That is capitalism at its best. Yeah. <laughs> a load of people working on something and one person profiting from it the most. Yeah, and the thing is, the story that they told about Charles Darrow is, you know, it was one that America wanted to hear at the time. So that's the one that the Parker brothers told and really marketed. You know, the story was, you know, right. this was the inventor. He was a down and his look salesman in Philadelphia suffering during the Great Depression, desperate for money to, right. his, to support his family. And then Eureka, down in his basement, just suddenly thinks of Monopoly, you know? Right, of course, yeah, yeah. And that, you know, it's such a funny thing because I feel like this is a really funny narrative that, that's come around in our Western civilization, um, which is this whole idea of the one man or one person genius. You know, that sort of thing where it's like, this person did it all by themselves. Like, you know, even like Facebook, yeah. where I always think that people are like, he created Facebook himself. Then he created Facebook all by himself. And I'm like, well, did he? Because then he got like, I don't know, sued by every single person in his life because they were like, hey, we all helped you do this. You know what I mean? So, like, 
it, usually never is it one person yeah. who just did it all, but tons of people are usually there with their fingerprints all over it, helping along the way. Mm-hmm. And then one person really gets the glory. Yeah. And here's the thing. I mean, no one seemed to question, you know, why the game was on Atlantic City spaces when he grew up in Philadelphia and lived in Philadelphia. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you're like, so have, um, have you ever been to Atlantic City? Nope. He, never stepped there, never will. He said he, and you're like, that's weird. He said the family vacation there, which was not true. <laughs> oh my God, vacay, shut up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you did in your hole. Of course, in reality... He had stolen the game from his Quaker friends, the Todds, after playing it with them, even making them write out the rules, which was probably the first time the rules had been written down, as it was just passed <gasps> on orally and all that, that stuff. little, that little so and so. Oh my god! I don't necessarily think he was a bad person. Um, he really needed to support his family. I think he just saw opportunity and was just oh. that desperate for money but you know there's some shady stuff oh no I, I think I think I don't think he's a bad person but I think he's like definitely an opportunist I think it's more the issue of like ownership and being like yeah I created this instead of being like oh like or being like actually I just took this game and like I made it a commodity that's fine yeah you know what I mean but pretending you came up with it isn't fine no no and you know there I didn't really get into it but there were a couple of other people that had tried to market Monopoly in the past, but they never claimed they had invented the game. They just, you know. Right. The thing is, the Todds that lived in Philadelphia, they had Quaker friends in Atlantic City. So that's where they learned it. They took it back and, it, you know, that's how it made its way to Charles Darrow. Um, but here's something funny for you. The Todds version of the game that they got from their Quaker's friends had a typo. There's an area called Marvin Gardens in Atlantic City, which is spelt with the M-A-R-V-E-N. But, yeah. you know, Charles Todd, too many Charles, Charles Darrow, Charles Todd, he took it down on his board as Marvin with an I. And that's the oh. same typo that was on Darrow's board that wouldn't be corrected on official Monopoly boards for years to come. It wasn't oh. his typo. It was the typo of the guy that he copied. Well, well, well. Here's what upsets me, though. Charles Darrow and his wife avoided... Their Quaker friends that they got right after they got the rules from crossing the street whenever their paths crossed. Oh no! They all fell out because of it. See, I mean, there obviously yeah. is some bad blood there. Like, come on, you know what I mean? Like, you don't yeah. you don't go like, oh, thanks for writing down the rules, and then like ignore them for the rest of your life if there's no bad blood. You know? Yeah, and the the Quaker community was hurt and confused. How could someone own Monopoly? Because for them, it was just this, they didn't know who invented it, but it was just like this common space, this this thing. Yeah. This, yeah, this this thing. And there was also kind of at odds because, you know, Quakers aren't really for, you know, suing or all that kind of stuff. Yes, so. yeah. Very forgiving religion, yeah. really, and people. Yeah. It's likely that the Parker brothers were aware he didn't create the game, but they did their best to push his creation story because it's the story that America wanted yeah. during the depression. Yeah. And you know, it's the American dream story as well as buy up patents and squelch any games that were even remotely similar, including Lizzie's updated 1924 patent of the landlord's game. Oh my God. They wanted to get Monopoly copyrighted and trademarked and essentially monopolize oh. Monopoly. Oh, I, uh, this is where it breaks my heart. Something like this, like the real, 
kicking the bloody underdog at this stage. Do you know what I mean? Like the bullies that come in. Yeah. And how did our Lizzie take it? Our beautiful Lizzie. <laughs> Here's the thing. Our wonderful Lizzie, obviously unaware of the success Monopoly was having or not aware that it was essentially her game. Her game. Yeah. Yeah. She was honored to have the Parker brothers offer to buy her patent and publish the landlord's game as well as two of her other games, Kingsmen and Bargain Day. She was paid $500 and offered no residuals. Think about oh, Charles Darrow who got 7,000 and residuals. My God. That is actually so frustrating. Like that is so incredibly frustrating to hear. Because so, yeah. your man got 7,000 and, you know, residuals and then she gets 500 and she was as well because of course she's a woman at the time well she's a woman anyway but like of that <laughs> time she probably thought geez I'm getting great pay here because you know what I mean women are are and still were and still are undervalued and underpaid yeah oh that's so incredibly frustrating and like from a creative's point of view obviously like I've never created a board game in my life um, though now I'm considering doing the land dress or the landlord, the woman game or something, I don't know, and just see if I can bully Monopoly out of it. But like, you know, your creative ideas are so important to value. And, and a lot of people are always going to, I think, you know, when it comes to money, people might try and undervalue your creative ideas because, you know, like it's hard to, you know what I mean? Like in this capitalist kind of world, it's sometimes hard to put a value on it, but actually your creative ideas are so valuable and it is really hard to stick by them and like have, you know, confidence in them that you should be paid a lot. So to hear how little she was paid in comparison to a guy who just happened upon the game is, is devastating, isn't it? Yeah. Lizzie didn't care about the money though she was just delighted to have her economic beliefs spread that's all she believed in you know she was like you know i'm okay to not take that much money yeah you see i love the money yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's that's the that's the big difference between me and lizzie other than i haven't done half the work she has but i love the money you know (laughs) of course in reality the henry george ideologies which were in the rules a lot were severely watered down and the games received little to no marketing a short and limited run before eventually faded into obscurity like Lizzie herself. So what's interesting, I don't know if you know this, Sergio, like do, does the game, that gaming company, the Parker Brothers, are they still the same company or am I, like are they still a company that exists? It's bought up by Hasbro's. And so do Hasbro's, do they now own the Landlord game? I wonder. Yeah, probably do, but they're not going to do anything about it. I know, but it would be such an interesting thing, wouldn't it? To like, if, if they still owed, owed, owned it, it'd be such an interesting thing if they ever did like, wouldn't it be lovely if they did like a limited release or something in her honor? Yeah. We'll talk about what they did instead, which is very awful. Okay. But I'm going to say okay, that yeah. to the end. Okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. So yeah. Meanwhile, Monopoly, of course, was going global. Lizzie did try speaking out about it, but it didn't really go anywhere. A couple of newspaper articles and you know there's a photo of her holding up the landlord's game and monopoly and she looks incredible because she has white hair but then these like amazing like bushy dark black eyebrows but then a face still full of character yeah and considering the fees lizzie used to develop the game it overall probably cost her more than she made yeah charles darrow and his family are still millionaires 
Um, Fuckers. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, excuse my language. <laughs> she said, Lizzie said she wouldn't have minded if people were at least learning about the single tax theory, which in Monopoly, yeah. they weren't. Yeah. Um, Lizzie died in 1948, still a diehard Georgist. Unfortunately, Georgia, Georgism, or, for, you know, it depends on your economic belief, Georgism yeah. support had dwindled greatly due to Americans lumping it in with socialism and ergo anti-Americanism. Even though we talked about the start, it, it's not socialism. It's very different yeah. than socialism. But, you know, you hear that kind of stuff, that kind of anti-monopolism, and it just sounds like socialism and anti-capitalist. Yeah. yeah. She died thinking she was a failure and her legacy written out oh. by Parker Brothers. That's actually We probably... Sorry, go on. Wouldn't have heard this story. Like, all that information that I gave you probably would have been completely lost to time if it wasn't for an economics professor, Ralph Ansbach, from San Francisco, who unearthed the story and gathered testimonies from these people through a long, like over a decade legal battle against Parker Brothers and their parent company at the time, General Mills, in order to sell his game, Anti-Monopoly, in the 70s. Right, okay. And that is a whole fascinating, amazing story, which I'm not going into now because this is an episode about Lizzie because I love my girl Lizzie. And all the information I could find about her was in connection to Monopoly was I'm like, okay, that she did that, but I want to know all this other great stuff she did. But if you're interested in that story, let me know and I'll do an episode all about that and Monopoly's history outside of Lizzie because that is also fascinating. I think you should do an episode about that, Saoirse. Um, yeah. Lizzie, I'm so happy, has having her own episode because she definitely earned it and mm. deserves it. Such a fascinating person. Uh, still want to hear her 10 minute, tight 10 minute mon- um, stand up. <laughs> <laughs> love, would have loved to have seen her on Live at the Apollo. But um, the fact, the Monopoly game itself, like that, that's also incredibly fascinating. Just, I'm yeah, devastated. There's loads for her. of stuff there. I'm dev- there's so many lessons, I think, to learn from her life. Hmm. Like a person who really staunchly believed in something and created, talk, talk about her, she created several games, but also that thing of like, you know, getting paid what you're worth. You know what I mean? For she's your fucking fuming. Imagine seeing Monopoly. Yeah. Imagine that was you. Oh. You were like, I want my belief spread. And you see your game being used to not spread your beliefs and you're making oh, it, nothing. Almost to, to spread the opposite of your beliefs. That's what I think would would have been the most heartbreaking thing. But like, yeah, it, it really exactly. is. Exactly, it's the complete opposite for what she stood for. And when, Exactly. But yeah, like, and, I, I do think as well, she's... Uh, she definitely was a person who didn't mind provoking people, getting her message out there. And like at the end mm-hmm. of the day, she really did do something with her life. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, as much as like, it mightn't have been the game that she wanted out there. Like that game is enjoyed by millions of people because of her. And has caused yeah. many family arguments <laughs> and many good times in the family and caused me to kick the game, you know, in my cousin's face. And my cousin deserved it. So, you know what I mean? I <laughs> think she's a fantastic human being and I'm so delighted. And I cannot yeah. wait, by the way, I hope you do a play about her. I cannot wait to see it. Well, if you're up for it, I'd love to have you back on to talk about Monopoly outside of Lizzie. Now that you know the original origins, we kind of fast forward a bit in time because there is a fascinating history there as well. I definitely will be up for it. Definitely. Amazing. Let's do it. Part two, Monopoly part two. <laughs> uh, but I just wanted Lizzie to get her, her, get her praise. Yeah. Um, and I also want to say, you know, so huge, you know, if it hadn't been for that court case and Ralph Ansbach, like he got testimonies 
from the Quaker community. What, you know, a, a lot of them were what dead. Year, sorry, what world. year was this? What what time are we speaking that he did this? Um, 70s, this court case came about nineteen seventies. Right. Okay. It was sorry. a long, long time over a course of several years, and a lot of them were delighted. One woman, it was very. Again, this is all stuff that I cut out. Because I was like, I want to focus on Lizzie, but I'm just telling it all to you anyway. She had said that like she can finally look at a Monopoly board and smile, which Aww. is the sweetest thing because yeah. you know he unearthed the real story. But again, this was in the 70s before the time of internet, so you know a lot of this information would have been gone. And I will, I'll have you back on soon, and I'll tell you all about that. Brilliant. Um. All this information would have been probably lost. You know, Charles Darrow was still pushed as the inventor. That's what most people believe until quite recent years. So I need to shout out the amazing Mary Pillen, who did a lot of the journalistic work in regards. And she does the whole Monopoly history and gives such great background, the richest history of Lizzie. But again, you know, there's only a couple of chapters about Lizzie. A lot of it is about all this other stuff, which I will talk about. But it was the first time that we got this information about Lizzie. She wrote this book in 2015, The Monopolists. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, she, you know, when she's talking about it, she said that it was really humbling for her as a journalist to realize that there was all this information that didn't exist online. Before she wrote this book, if you Googled Lizzie McGee, you wouldn't get anything on Google search results. That is nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know... You know, Mary Pillen's amazing. I'm going to reach out to her on t- Twitter because she is on Twitter ah. and she's also another great woman. And I haven't yet, but I will when I, if I do make this pay. I will make this pay. It's going to be a few years, but I'll make it. Do it. Do it. Yeah. So as I said, I chose to focus on Lizzie, but Mary's book goes into incredible detail and is really well written about everything. Um, it's the first time I bought a book for research purposes because I was not happy with the information I was getting about Lizzie online. And I do not regret it. And it also wasn't available in any libraries. So if you're interested, buy the book or borrow it from me. I would I would actually really like to read that book. Because currently I'm doing a reading 50 books in one year um, as my New Year's resolution. So if I could ever borrow that off you, Sergia, please let me. Yes. Well, I'll have to have you read it after I have you back on because that'll just... Yeah, I'll have too much of the information. <laughs> You'll have too much of the information. Yeah, yeah, or you yeah. could do that and we'll just chat about it. Okay. <laughs> so I can leave you with this. In 2019, which, you know, was not that long ago, Hasbro released Miss Monopoly with a very cringy ad, cover art that looks like it was, I don't know, it looks like it was from a rip-off Pixar movie. You know those kind of uh, Yeah, like animation? sort of yeah. DreamWorks or something? <laughs> like, we want to be Pixar, but we're not animation. Yeah, yeah. That kind of animation of a Miss Monopoly, you know, with like heels or whatever. Oh my um, god! I'm basically game... just imagining the green M M&M, and M, you know, that oversexualized green M and M, where you're like, yeah. why is this really horny M M&M and M on on an ad? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this game was generally criticized by everyone. You know, the feminists saw it as like pandering, and the non-feminists viewed it as like, we don't need this. The National Review called it the world's dumbest board game. I recommend after this having a look at the ad on YouTube. I have to see this. Yes, I have to see this. So the tiles contain different inventions made by women. And in this Monopoly, women make more than men, if you're playing. Which, 
you know, oh also are, well, are they going to go back in time and pay our Lizzie the money? Yeah, she and here's the thing as well: is it's like, well, for starters, let's you know not get into the fact that it's c- clearly ignoring the fact that you know gender isn't binary and all that. Yeah, you know, women get more for passing go, but it's a game that's meant to honor women inventions, and the game fails to acknowledge Lizzie McGee. Yes, yeah, showing that they are still yeah. trying to write her out of history. Mary Pillen yeah. criticizes Hasbro for this in an article she wrote for the New Yorker, stating that during her research for the Monopolists, Hasbro refused to comment or acknowledge Lizzie's contribution to the game. And I'm going to end this episode with a quote from this article, which I snaps to Mary Pillen and yes, everything. If Hasbro is serious about women's empowerment, perhaps the company could start by admitting that a woman invented Monopoly in the first place. And that's everything I have on Lizzie McGee and Monopoly. And I hope you enjoyed that journey. And I want everyone to know about Lizzie McGee because she's incredible. I'm immediately going to go and read that Mary Pillen article about um, Miss Monopoly. And um, I really want to read it. Thank you so much for having me, Saoirse. Thank you so much. If you really want to do, you know, and I think this is for any company, if you really want to do justice to women you have to acknowledge your past. We all do. We all have to acknowledge our past in every sense, whether it's yeah. due to sexism or racism or anything within our own countries and cultures. But companies as well really do have to look back and go, okay, are there people we've overlooked here? <laughs> <laughs> like say the inventor of the game. Um, and what can we do to sort of pick this person up? Like uh, what? Like if we as well, uh, one thing that drives me nuts, and this is what, what has happened to Lizzie McGee, is having women um written out of history you know what I mean just completely or or working class people written out of history. you know yeah. like a lot of people are written out of history and um not given their dues go back and give them their dues it would do a lot if you know Hasbro really actually upped the fact that this woman created the game and you know added it on their website maybe did something from the town she's in you know what I mean it was really a cool thing for them to acknowledge um, and for all companies to acknowledge, you know, if there's, pe- there's people overlooked, they really should go back and acknowledge them. Yeah. And even the Quakers, because although Lizzie made the Landlord's Game, that whole Quaker community, they really worked and made it Monopoly. Yeah. Um, but Lizzie, my girl, Lizzie and Grace, you're coming on again soon. Sorry, I'm roping you back in, but I hope you had a great time. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'll be happy to be back. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, I mean, listen, I have my own podcast called Fad Camp. Um, it's a comedy podcast about the ridiculousness of fad diets. Me and my co-host, Connor Dowling, have tried every fad diet under the sun. So you get to hear our embarrassing stories of having tried them. So uh, if you give that a listen, we're on all the Spotify, Google podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And I have been your host, Saoirse Sinead, as always. You can find me on Searchable on Twitter and AbsurdRealHistory at gmail.com if you want stuff specifically about the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by my company, Scream for Ireland. So do give that a like on all the socials. That'd be sound. Um, Also, if you've enjoyed this, this is still a new podcast, do make sure to tell your friends about it because I love you can hear the way i talked today how much i love finding these stories and just sharing them with people so yeah that's it that's the podcast thank you grace thank you Sergio, for having me
of course, has it changed the way you view Monopoly? Next time you play Monopoly, are you going to be like... Absolutely. Every time I play now, instead of getting enraged about losing, I'll get enraged that Lizzie McGee didn't get her time. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll, and I'll uh, throw the board over for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a different... Yeah, so spread the word. Spread the good word of Lizzie McGee to everyone. To everyone. Will do.